Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. It is something of a forgotten story, 30 years before Black Lives Matter. Story of police violence in the US, confrontation, repression, destruction that got severely out of hand. It culminated on the 13th of May 1985 in Philadelphia when the police dropped explosives from a helicopter at a house in the middle of the city. Those inside were activists in a revolutionary movement called MOVE, which took root in the early 1970s. MOVE founded by a certain Vincent Leopard, who changed his name to John Africa, the group's followers doing the same, all having the surname Africa. They were, and still are, mostly African-Americans at the time, all living under one roof. Now, relations with their neighbours had been very strained, to the point where the police moved in to evict them. An armed standoff and firefight ensued, including the dropping of the explosives onto the house, 11 people inside, including children, killed. The resulting fire destroying more than 60 other surrounding homes. The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards. I have met with our team which we assembled to deal with this bombing. And I have determined to take the following steps to assure the strongest response to this situation. First, I have deployed a crisis management team under the leadership of the FBI, working with the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, military and local authorities. We are sending the world's finest investigators to solve these murders. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Killer Podcast production. I hope everyone is doing well this week after yet another school shooting killed 18 kids. I'm not going to get into specifics, but I do think it is important to acknowledge the loss that has taken place And this comes just 10 days after 10 people were killed in a mass shooting in Buffalo. Guys, this isn't good. And it appears we are all too comfortable with seeing this crap on the news. Just to give you some perspective, this was the 27th school shooting so far this year. Now, Jacqueline Diaz and Dario Lopez Mills from the Associated Press reported on the incident in Uvalde. I'm going to read this verbatim because it is short and to the point. Quote, A shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, that has killed 19 children and two adults marks the 27th school shooting this year. Texas Governor Greg Greg Abbott said the shooter behind Tuesday's incident was killed. Again, this is 10 days after a shooting at a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York, that took the lives of 10 people. Education Week has been tracking school shootings since 2018, and according to its database, 119 such incidents have taken place since then. There were 27 school shootings with injuries or deaths this year. The organization tracks the shootings where a firearm was discharged and where any person 
or other than the suspect, has a bullet wound resulting from the incident. Now, Education Week also includes only incidents that happen on a K-12 through school property or on a school bus, and that is to occur when a school is in session or during a school-sponsored event. It does not track cases in which the only shots fired were from a school resource police officer. The U.S. has surpassed 200 shootings, mass shootings, this year. The Gun Violence Archive, an independent collection organization, has counted 212 mass shootings that have occurred so far this year as of Tuesday. It defines a mass shooting incident as an incident in which four or more people were shot or killed, excluding the shooter. Data on the mass shootings that have occurred so far this year can be found on their website. Now, the U.S. again ended in 2021 with 693 mass shootings. Pretty good stuff, guys. The year before it was 611, and 2019 was 417. Now, for school shootings, Education Week says that in 2021, there were 34 such incidents, and in 2020, there were 10. Both 2019 and 2018 did record 24. So, yeah, pretty bad. And I would say that we clearly have a bigger problem than anything that I can do about it. But it is important to remember how easily these things can happen. I know a lot of you are parents, and this shouldn't be something that you have to worry about when your kids get to school. And please stop blaming mental illness. This has got to be the biggest cop-out ever. And it totally maligns a very large group of people who don't pick up arms and shoot up schools. If mental health was such a big deal, then you'd think the government would enable access to such services and insurance companies would actually cover therapy. But guess what? They don't. I've been in therapy for decades, and it has all been paid out of pocket. We don't need to do the math on how much that has cost, but it certainly is a big screw you when they instantly blame mental illness when mass shootings occur. I'm not naive. I know you have to have a screw loose to commit a mass shooting, but most of these people have not been known to have mental health issues. This is likely for two reasons. One, they don't have the means to pay for therapy. And two, it has been stigmatized in our society. So pretty freaking cool, guys. So how about we fix these two issues and then we can talk more about mental illness. But nothing will be fixed, and we are destined to repeat our mistakes because we live in a country where shootings are just part of our life. It doesn't have to be this way, you guys. I know tons of people who responsibly own guns. I just wish some of them would look at mass shootings, and instead of saying there should be someone there with a gun, they think of Uvalde when there were cops with guns, and they didn't prevent this. So... Big apologies for the downer opener, but it is pretty freaking sick that we have to live with this. And I have family and friends who work in schools, and somehow they now have a dangerous job. We've really come to a sad state of affairs. But with that being said, let's get on to this week's episode. And I'm going to keep things light this week. Well, as light as a show about true crime can be, we are going to look at some crazy bombings that have actually occurred in the country in the last century. And we will start with what was originally called the Weatherman or the Weathermen, a name that was taken 
from a line in a Bob Dylan song. Now, this is according to the FBI. The Weather Underground was a small, violent offshoot of Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS, a group that was created in the turbulent 60s to promote social change. Now, according to the FBI, it was on January 29th, 1975, that an explosion rocked the headquarters of the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C. While no one was hurt, the damage was extensive. It did impact 20 offices on three separate floors. Now, hours later, another bomb was found at a military induction center in Oakland, California, and safely detonated. A domestic terrorist group called the Weather Underground claimed responsibility for both bombs. When the SDS collapsed in 1969, the Weather Underground stepped forward, inspired by communist ideologies, and embracing violence and crime as a way to protest the Vietnam War, racism, and other left-wing aims. Quote, our intention is to disrupt the empire, to incapacitate them, to put pressure on the cracks, claimed the group's 1974 manifesto, Prairie Fire. So the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation began investigating the group in June 1969. They estimated the weatherman's total strength at this time to be 400 members. The cells were located predominantly in Berkeley, California, Chicago, Detroit, and New York City. So the bombings continued throughout 1971. The weatherman placed two bombs at the Capitol in Washington, D.C., both of which exploded on March 1st. The Pentagon bombing on May 19, 1972, was on the birthday of Ho Chi Minh, the leader of the Vietnamese nationalist movement. Now, this marked the end of the weatherman's major actions for almost a year and a half. In August, the group attacked three offices of the California prison system after the mysterious murder of a prison revolutionary, George Jackson, in the San Quentin prison yard. Now, two weeks later, after 30 inmates were killed in a revolt at New York's Attica Penitentiary, the weatherman bombed the office of the state commissioner of corrections in Albany. By the next year, the group had claimed credit for 25 bombings, including the U.S. Capitol, the Pentagon, the California Attorney General's Office, and the New York City Police Station. Quite a number. The FBI doggedly pursued these terrorists as their attacks mounted. Many members were identified, but their small numbers and guerrilla tactics helped them hide under assumed identities. In 1978, the Bureau arrested five members who were plotting to bomb a politician's office. Others were captured after two policemen and a Brinks driver were murdered in a botched armored car robbery in Nanuet, New York in 1981. Key to disrupting the group for good was the newly created FBI New York City Police Anti-Terrorist Task Force. It brought together the strengths of both organizations and focused them on these domestic terrorists. The task force and others like it helped pave the way for today's joint terrorism task forces created by the Bureau and each of its field offices to fuse federal, state, and local law enforcement and intelligent resources to combat today's terrorist threats. By the mid-80s, the Weather Underground was pretty much history. But there were several fugitives that were able to successfully hide themselves. Now, they did emerge eventually in recent years, and they did answer to their crimes. 
So that was the Weather Underground, and that information was from the FBI.gov. Now, the other bombing that I want to talk about was one our government sanctioned for well over 50 years. That's right. I'm talking about our nuclear testing program. Yes, the United States conducted a whopping 1,032 nuclear tests between 1945 and 1992 at the Nevada test site at sites in the Pacific Ocean. Amchikta Island, Alaska, Peninsula, Colorado, Mississippi, and New Mexico. Really good stuff, guys, especially since I'm in Colorado now. So the Nevada test site between 1951 and 1958, there were around 100 nuclear weapon tests that were conducted in the atmosphere at the Nevada test site. So this was located 100 kilometers northwest of Vegas. Now, this was larger than many small countries, and again... They had 3,500 square kilometers of undisturbed land. So people living in the United States during these years were exposed to varying levels of radiation. Really smart. Sedan also created the largest man-made crater in the United States, displacing over 12 million tons of Earth. Well, little information was released during this time about human exposure to the fallout, shocking. For example, in November-December 1997 issue of Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Pat Ortmeier and Arjun Makajani stated that the U.S. government failed to share the results of research conducted in 1950, indicating that milk would be contaminated by fallout. So there was radioactive fallout from the Sedan explosion because a number of tests were also carried out from September 1957 all the way up until, I don't know, 1990 or so. And uh, again, the Storex sedan was part of the Operation Plowshare program to investigate the use of nuclear weapons for, quote-unquote, peaceful purposes such as mining. Hmm. It caused uh, more radioactive fallout, as you can imagine. And, you know, pretty much this was <laughs> the most contamination that any nuclear explosion conducted in the United States ever emitted. So, detonated on July 6, ni July 6 1962, the sedan released roughly 880,000 curries of iodine-131 into the atmosphere. Now, detected radioactivity was especially high in parts of Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Illinois. And guess what? That exposed millions of people to some radioactive fallout. It also created, as I said before, the largest crater that was made by man. Now, this is so dumb that, hey, I mean, I guess we just didn't know any better, but let's just think about this for a second. We used the bomb. We killed out many people. We decided to use that bomb and test it in the United States. Yeah. Uh, not, not cool, not cool, not cool. And I live near the Rocky Mountain uh, Refuge. I don't know. There's a site near here that they did a bunch of testing and radioactivity caused cancer in a lot of places. And the same was here. The lethal potential of nuclear tests was not immediately apparent to downwind resi residents, but an increasing number of leukemia cases started occurring in people living downwind of the NTS. Now, this was according to the 1982 publication 
Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Radiation by Harvey Wasserman and Norman Solomon. Now, in an article entitled Cancer Among Military Personnel Exposed to Nuclear Weapons, the American Cancer Society explains, quote, the late 70s, in the late 70s, a higher than usual number of cases of leukemia, four expected, 10 found, was seen among 3,000 troops present at the Smoky Nuclear Test in Nevada. In August 1957, that was the case. Now, this question arose as to whether these cases were caused by radiation from the nuclear tests, and a recent study compared about 1,000 veterans who received the highest doses of radiation to other veterans who were minimally exposed. The risk of dying from some blood-related cancers, certain leukemias, and lymphomas was more than three times higher than those exposed to radiation. And the risk of dying overall was also slightly higher, about 22%. However, the risk was not increased for the other types of cancers known to be caused by radiation. And the overall risk of dying from any form of cancer was not higher. Hmm. I wonder if that f study was flawed at all. Well, anyway, you had Philip Fradkin, and he describes in his book, Fallout, an American Nuclear Tragedy, how two nuclear tests, one was nicknamed Dirty Harry and Shot Nancy in 1956, or 1953, resulted in the deaths of 1,422 EUs and 2,900 lambs in Nevada, Utah, and Arizona from severe radiation injuries. Okay, <clears throat> that's not good. Just to let you know, like, hey, if animals are dying and it's because we're blowing up stuff in the desert, maybe we should stop doing that. Just going to throw it out there. Seems like common sense, right? But, hey, it is what it is. On May 10th, 1984, the U.S. District Court Judge Bruce Jenkins ruled that radioactive fallout from above-ground nuclear tests in the 1950s had caused 10 people to die of cancer and that the government was guilty of negligence in the way it had conducted the tests. It was the first time that the explosions at the NTS had been legally held to have caused cancers. The judge ruled that the government had also been negligent in failing to warn residents of Nevada, southern Utah, and northern Arizona who lived in the path of the test's wind-borne fallout plumes. Again, if you were a weatherman, you would have taken a second to look at this and go, maybe this isn't the best thing to be doing. I don't know. Maybe. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about the doom scrolling, sleeping too little, sleeping too much, undereating, or overeating. I like to think that I deal with my stresses by taking a little bit of mindfulness each day. I do try to make it a point to focus on myself. Because stress shows up in all kinds of ways. And in a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself. Do less, and maybe try some therapy. 
I've personally been in therapy since I was a child, and I would suggest it for everyone. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's so much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Who Killed Amy Maholovic listeners. Get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash who. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash who. <sighs> so I would be not doing myself any favors or doing anybody who, who listens to this show any favors if I didn't mention the one bombing. Well, we're not going to talk about the big, big bombing because that's really, that's a whole nother ball of wax. And uh, we're going to stick to domestic terrorism and that would be one timothy mcveigh of the oklahoma city bombing and it was on the morning of april 19th 1995 when i was actually getting ready to go to work at gail's flower shop when an ex-army soldier and security guard named timothy mcveigh parked a yellow rented rider truck in front of the alfred p mura building in downtown oklahoma city oklahoma city now, what was he doing there? Well, he was planting a bomb because inside the vehicle, he had made a deadly cocktail of agricultural fertilizer, diesel fuel, and other chemicals. McVeigh got out of the truck, locked the car, got into his getaway car, he ignited the one-time fuse, and then another. It precisely... 9.02 a.m., the bomb exploded. Now, I do remember turning CNN on at this time and seeing just a cloud of smoke as the news people were literally trying to figure out what the hell had just happened. I mean, it, I mean, it was absolutely a destructive uh, bombing for anybody who's too young to remember that look it up it's terrible it was not good lots of people died and again within moments the area was like a war zone a third of the building had been reduced to rubble and many floors flattened like pancakes now there were dozens of cars that were incinerated and more than 300 nearby buildings were damaged or destroyed now, the human toll was still more devastating, according to this article. 168 people were killed, including 19 children. And not to bring it back to what we talked about at the beginning of the show, but this is one of those cases where, unfortunately, children did lose their lives. And again, these were complete, all children are innocent, and these children are even more innocent because. This was a pure act of insanity and homegrown terrorism. So this was on the heels of the World Trade Center bombing in New York that happened two years earlier. And so many people in the media, of course, jumped to the idea that this was terrorists. And the meanwhile, or the FBI meanwhile, had quickly arrived at the scene and they were supporting rescue efforts and investigating facts now beneath the pile of concrete and twisted steel were actual clues 
Now, this is what the FBI does best, and they were determined to track those down. They didn't actually take very long to get to them, and it was on April 20th that the rear axle of the rider truck was located, and this yielded a vehicle identification number, the VIN number as most people would know it as, that was traced to a body shop in Junction City, Kansas. So employees at the shop actually helped the FBI put together a composite of the man who had rented the van. And agents showed this drawing around town, and local employees supplied a name, Tim McVeigh. So a quick call to the Bureau's Criminal Justice Information Services Division in West Virginia on April 21st. (laughs) That's a lot to say. It led to the discovery that McVeigh was actually already in jail. Now, he was pulled over. If you want to talk about just karma or whatnot, he was actually pulled over about 80 miles north of Oklahoma City by an observant Oklahoma State trooper, trooper who noticed a missing license plate on his yellow mercury. So McVeigh had a concealed weapon and, well, guess what? When you do that, you get arrested. And this was only 90 minutes after the bombing. So from there, the evidence began adding up. Agents did find traces of the chemicals using the explosion on McVeigh's clothes. And, well, a business card on which McVeigh had suspiciously scribbled, quote, TNT at $5 per stick. Need more. Note to criminals and domestic terrorists. Probably not the best and smartest idea to write down your plans on business cards and carry them around. So they learned about McVeigh's extremist ideologies and his anger over the events at Waco, which was also two years prior. And they discovered a friend of McVeigh's named Terry Nichols did help him build that bomb. And then they found another man, Michael Fortier, was aware of the bomb plot. Now, the bombing was quickly solved, but the investigation turned out to be one of the most exhaustive in FBI history. They go on to say that no stone was left unturned to make sure every clue was found and all the culprits identified. By the time it was over, the Bureau had conducted more than 28,000 interviews, interviews, followed some 43,000 investigative leads, amassed three and a half tons of evidence, and reviewed nearly a billion pieces of information. So in the end, the government that McVeigh hated and hoped to topple swiftly captured him and well they convicted him and his co-conspirators and guess who's dead that's timothy mcveigh so like i said this was one of those bombings that i remember as a kid and it was quite shocking and uh kind of was the first of um i guess it was the first bombing in a number of years after the world trade center where you could actually see something come from the explosion, come from the bombing. I mean, this was a bad, bad day for America. So, um, and again, you know, 9-11 changed everything. So, unfortunately, Oklahoma City kind of gets the short end of the stick on that one because, you know, clearly one event was bigger than the other. But still, at the time... This was the biggest event in U.S. history, and it was certainly scary to think that one of our own 
citizens would be willing to blow up so many innocent people. So here we are. And this brings me to my last story. I completely apologize because this actually is not the last story. Because if you don't have domestic terrorists to commit the bombings for you, then you can always turn to the police. Or at least that was the case for the Philadelphia police back in 1982. And this was from the West Philadelphia Collaborative History. In 1982, MOVE members of all ages settled into a row house at 6221 Osage Avenue on the western fringe of West Philadelphia, just a block from Cobbs Creek Park. The house was owned by former MOVE member Louise James, sister to MOVE founder John Africa, a.k.a. Vincent Leapart, in late 1983 as city officials turned deaf ears to the organization's continued demands for the release of their incarcerated brethren Move members began to broadcast these demands day and night through a loudspeaker at the Osage Avenue site. This activity outraged their largely middle-class African-American neighbors whose complaints were heard but tabled by high-level city officials. This included Mayor W. Wilson Good, Philadelphia's first African-American mayor, who took office in 1984. His administration was terrified by the prospect of another violent confrontation with Move. Yet the stage was already being set for the terrible violence that erupted on May 13, 1985. Now, MOVE styled itself as a self-defense organization. Even as it mounted an aggressive campaign on the 6200 block of Osage to demand the release of the incarcerated MOVE 9, ironically, members' actions, incessant profanity-laced diatribes, shouted day and night over the loudspeaker system and threatening behaviors on the street, had a direct impact on not only Move's neighbors, but the block itself. So these residents vigorously voiced their complaints, and on multiple occasions, to City Hall. Did they get anywhere? What the hell do you think? Of course not. The last straw for Move neighbors was the erection of fortified heavy, heavy timber bunker on the roof of the 6221 Osage house. This is where holes that were gun ports... Yeah, I'd get a little nervous at this point, too, if I was one of these neighbors. So on April 30th, 1985, the neighbors at Wits End, they appealed to Governor Richard Thornborough in a high-profile news conference. They said, we are here to let the governor know about the disquietude and general state of terror we are forced to live in under the MOVE organization. We want the governor to know that regardless of whatever may have happened in the past, today... Move is a clear and present danger to the health and safety of the entire block. We also want the governor to know that we have been to our elected representatives in city and state government, but to date, nothing of any consequence has been done. We are now asking Governor Thornborough to step in and deal with this situation. So, you know, this is a public problem. So finally, the governor requested a tactical plan for removing the occupants. And the city's district attorney, Ed Rendell, a future Philadelphia mayor and Pennsylvania governor, I don't know if this is going anywhere good, activated an outstanding warrants for four adults in the house. And the police had a court order to remove the children ages 7 to 13 who were illegally kept from attending school. Now, this was part of a plan that 
called for taking the children into custody during their daily outing while they were out at the park. What the plan didn't call for was the intercession of local mediators who knew move the neighborhood and the situation. Late on the night of May 12th, Mother's Day, police evacuated the block and the houses on surrounding streets. Most of the 500 police officers, 500 police officers on the scene took vantage points in nearby houses that afforded views of the front of the building. A tactical team guarded the rear alleyway. Now, MOVE had barricaded this and all their property lines. So two teams were positioned and they were set to lay siege on the property. At 6 a.m. the following morning, Police Commissioner Gregor Sambor yelled through a bullhorn, Attention, move. This is America. You have to abide by the laws of the United States. After reading the arrest warrants, he announced, Quote, We do not wish to harm anyone. All occupants have 15 minutes to peacefully evacuate the premises and surrender. This is your only notice. 15 minutes starts now. Well, <laughs> what do you think they did? They did not back down. So a gun battle broke out, and police had M16s and automatic rifles and, uh, you know, Uzis and shotguns and oh, all sorts of, I mean, Thompson machine guns were even brought up. <laughs> uh, West Philadelphia, born and raised. I'm Will Smith. I slap people for no reason. Uh, whatever. Anyway, not to bring that up, but uh, anyway, in the words of the Philadelphia Special Investigation Commission. <laughs> it investigated the events of May 13th. The police fired over 10,000 10, rounds of ammunition in under 90 minutes at one row house. And that row house actually contained children. High-pressure water hoses and tear gas canisters were also employed. You'd think this was the 60s or the 50s, wouldn't you? Nah, this was the 80s. So the resistance lasted into the afternoon, and nothing was working. So this is when they authorized the release of a two-pound satchel bomb composed of Tovex and C4 explosives, which you would think from, like, the Die Hard movie. You know what I'm talking about. Give me the detonators from a state police helicopter under the fortified bunker on 6221 this is where they, they dropped the they dropped a bag of bombs onto the this home they, they literally the police loaded C4 explosives into a bag and dropped it onto this home so <laughs> according to the move commission quote the fire which destroyed the Osage neighborhood was caused by a bomb which exploded on the roof of the move house. Now the fire began milliseconds after the bomb blast when the friction-heated metal fragments penetrated a gas can on the roof and ignited gasoline vapors. One, disaster, one disastrous decision begat another. Firefighters were on the scene throughout the day but took no immediate action. Police Commissioner Sambor and Fire Commissioner William C. Richmond had decided to let the fire burn as a tactical weapon to force the occupants from the house. Well, unfortunately, their communications, well, they didn't go that well. And, and, you know, lots of people died. So conventional firefighting failed. And by dawn the next morning, the uh, 
the house was obliterated. And uh, yeah, 11 move members, six adults and five children were killed. Among the dead was John Africa, Move's founder, who had not been present at the 1978 shootout in Powhatan Village and who had lived at another Move site outside Philadelphia in the intervening years. In the gutted house, the police found only two pistols, two shotguns, and a 22 caliber rifle. So, 10,000 rounds of ammunition shot from M16s, Uzis, shotguns, handguns, and these guys had a couple of handguns and a 22 caliber rifle. Uh, I'm just going to say it. That's some fucking bullshit. So two members actually managed to escape the fire. And this was Ramona Africa. Now she was an adult. And Birdie Africa, who was a teenager. Now they were both badly burned, but... Uh, the members who remained in the house were pinned down by gunfire and never were able to get out. And uh, an open wound is still a pretty, pretty big open wound in the city of Philadelphia. So, uh, you know, I guess the lesson there is if you have a standoff, you don't drop a bomb on the house, let alone when there's children in there. Is that hard to understand or accept? I didn't think so. So last but not least, I will give you a prelude to a series that I have coming sometime in the future. And that's about 1976 in one Cleveland, Ohio. And this is titled 1976, the year Cleveland became Bomb City, USA. Now this is from Lisa Sanchez on October 20th, 2017. So in 1976, Cleveland was actually the most bombed city in the United States. The assassination and vandalism bombings had been on the rise throughout the decade, but 1976 was kind of the culmination. And again, that's what led National News to nickname Cleveland Bomb City USA. Now, according to this article, and then an article from The Plain Dealer, bombing business is booming here. That was the headline in The Plain Dealer. Cleveland's national ranking in bomb crimes had skyrocketed since 1974. The main cause was a continued gang war between the Italian families and Danny Green's Celtic Club, a group of Irish-American gangsters. Car bombs were a preferred method of assassination because the evidence was often destroyed in the explosion, leaving police with no leads. Although Green allegedly contracted car bombings for years, the turf war escalated after the unexpected death of Cleveland mobster John Scalish in 1976, Scalish's choice for a successor was James Licavoli, also known as Jack White, did not sit well with the Cleveland underworld. And as a result, arms traffickers and drug peddler John Nardi fought for control of Cleveland. Green allied himself with Nardi, helping take out a number of Licavoli's followers and bloating the number of car bombings in Cleveland. Throughout his criminal career, Green had commissioned dozens of car bomb assassinations. Some of these bombings were carried out by Green's go-to bomb expert, Art Snepiger. According to Rick Perello, who has been the author of many books, he wrote To Kill the Irishman, which was about Danny Green. Now, he said he rewarded Snepiger if the bombs grabbed headlines. Art got paid a bonus, quote, if the thing got on television or in the newspapers. 
Well, Snepperger, Snepperger died when he self-detonated on Halloween night, 1971. Some question whether Green was involved in his death. So bombings in Cleveland and Cuyahoga County became so common that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms created a headquarters in Northeast Ohio and doubled their staff in the area. Although the ATF had an increased presence in Cleveland, the bombing slowed and eventually stopped following Green's death in 1977 and the dissolution of the Cleveland mob. In May 1977, Nardi was killed by a car bomb in front of a Union Hall. Less than six months later, in October 1977, Green was also killed by a car bomb at his Lynnhurst dentist office, which I have driven by eight million times. I have seen the area where he was blown up, and if you've seen the movie To Kill the Irishman, it was nothing like it is in the movie. So, just so you know, it's what happens when you don't film in Cleveland and you film in Detroit. So, with all these two players out of the picture... The bombing slowed down, and again, this was probably for the best, and that's just kind of a few stories that I wanted to share this week. There will be a longer series on the bombings of Cleveland in 1976, coming soon to a podcast player near you, but those were a few stories that I didn't really want to go too deep into because of the sadness we've been dealing with all week, and you know... Thank you guys, really, honestly, for just listening. And um, look for my interview next week with author Catherine Miles. And she wrote the book Trailed, which is all about her search for a killer on the Appalachian Trail. You can find it wherever you get your favorite books. And thank you to BetterHelp.com for sponsoring this week's episode. If you'd like to save 10%, please use my promo code WHO. As you guys know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. And if you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the show by using my PayPal username at BillHuffman3. Or you can contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. Every contribution, guys, does help keep these shows on the air. And you can also help support the show by leaving a five-star review if you so desire. And that is wherever you listen to your favorite shows because those five stars do help keep important cases that I cover in the spotlight. So follow me on Twitter if you want to stay up to date on the shows that I have coming down the pipeline or whatever's on my mind. And again, thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? 
How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.